The last time we got together, we began to uh, take a look into the problem of gambling and uh, soon began to realize that probably the biggest problem with such activity is that gambling in one form or another has become a daily routine for literally tens of millions of Americans. We've got state-run lotteries and uh, things such as card clubs and legalized gambling, quote, resorts uh, like Las Vegas and Atlantic City and Reno and and uh, you know things of that nature. If you go on a cruise, cruise ships once they're outside a certain boundary, obviously they have casinos in them. And uh, so you've got a situation where, you know, and, and then even charities use things like bingo games and raffles and stuff like that to raise money for quote good causes. And uh, when you're in a situation such as that, it becomes obvious that gambling has been made accessible and in many cases acceptable to the general population. And the disturbing aspect of it is probably best summarized by a Duke University professor. His name is Philip Cook. He says this. It is troubling that the fantasy is sustained to such a large extent by ignorance and delusion that a state should even be in the fantasy business is highly curious. Here you have the same outfit that is trying to educate our children, selling images and hyperbole rather than factual information and telling the public, quote, play your hunch, you could win a bunch. I think that's interesting when you consider that when authority figures, whether it's state or local government, whether it's a church, whether it's a charitable organization, when you have those in authority giving their stamp of approval and even endorsing such activities, it's no wonder that the majority of people in our country have embraced it as being okay. See, the problem with leadership is that it's exactly that. It leads people in a certain direction. Godly leadership leads them closer to God and living a life that's pleasing to God, while those who are in opposition to such lead us in a different direction. And we've got to be very careful. We need to discern what activities, whether they're endorsed by state, local officials, whether they're endorsed by, quote, churches, whether they're endorsed by charitable groups, we need to ask some very difficult questions. Are we blindly following those in lead? And we have to ask the question. The question is simply this. Is gambling good for us or bad for us? And the most important question that I have to ask of myself is, as a person who loves the Lord, who wants to do what's right before God, who wants to live a life that's pleasing to God, I need to ask myself some very difficult questions in every area of my life. Is this activity an activity that is pleasing to God? Is this activity um, something that you know, demonstrates a Christ-like uh, lifestyle? Is this activity, or better yet, what does the Bible have to say about this activity? Because that's the tiebreaker in every, in every issue, in every situation in my life. I go back to that as a standard. What does God have to say? What does the Bible have to say? And that's really what we're going to look at today. What does the Bible have to say about the whole issue of gambling? Particularly, what we're going to look at are seven guidelines that I believe that the Bible clearly identifies for the whole issue and the problem of gambling. Seven guidelines that'll help us to understand um, what God's perspective is of gambling. Uh, the last time we got together, we took a look at the first one. We went into detail, so I won't go into much detail, but I want to illustrate in a second. But uh, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to his young son in the faith, and his name is Timothy, and he says this. In this particular section, 1 Timothy 6, we have tremendous principles as far as finances are concerned. And as it relates to gambling, we read this. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we've brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and we have clothing, we will be content with that. The problem that I see, number one, as far as gambling is concerned, is that gambling contributes to a person's lack of contentment. The question that you need to ask yourself is, does gambling make a person more content in their life, or does it lead them into discontent? Does it lead them away from contentment, or does it lead them toward contentment? And if you stop and think about God's goal for us, one of his many, many goals, but one goal is very specific, and that is this. God wants you and I to be content and be at peace in our life. That's what he wants. Jesus said that he came to bring us abundant life, that God wants us to have peace not only with God, but with one another, and to have peace in our own life. And a person that's living in a right relationship with God has peace in their life. 
And, and you can challenge yourself and ask a question. Have there been times in your life where you've been doing things involved in activities that were not right before God? Did you notice one thing that always is true in every situation? There is no peace in your life. There is guilt. There is frustration. There's no contentment. There is fear of discipline or punishment. There's fear of getting caught. But when all those things exist, there's no peace. There's a conspicuous lack of peace in your life. Let me illustrate this with a current illustration. This past, this past week, I talked to a friend of mine who was, uh, who was in a golf tournament. Actually, I talked to his wife because he hadn't returned yet. And he was in a golf tournament. And uh, his goal going into this golf tournament, and it, it was a, a highly visible golf tournament, so there was uh, you know, money that was on the line and things of that nature. But his goal going into it, he said, you know, I haven't been really playing that well, but what I, I, just, I, I just don't want to embarrass myself, and I'll be content just to, to play okay. So he goes out, and the tournament is in an area where there's legalized gambling, and he goes out, and he has a great practice round. So now he's thinking, well, God, you know we can really use the money. He's trying to get a business started, and, he, and, and kind of things, they're getting strapped financially, and they put a ton of money into this particular business. He said, well, God, you know we can really use the money. And good thing he reminded God of that, because God probably didn't realize that. <laughs> But you know how we are. We do that. You know, in case you're busy, I just want to... Did you see the checkbook balance and the savings account? Just thought I'd run us by you. So anyway, so, you know, this is, so he goes to this golf tournament. He, he's, he plays a great practice round. Now he's thinking, I'm not going to be content just to play well. I, I want to win this thing. So he's walking through the casino, and they've got all the people that are participating in this particular golf event, and they've got their odds of winning. You can bet on whoever you think is going to win. So he's walking through the, through the lobby and being an, an athlete, he's walking by and he looks up and he sees his name and he goes, 20 to 1. <laughs> you know, which, you know, isn't 2 to 1, it wasn't 5 to 2, it wasn't 500 to 1, it was 20 to 1. So now what he's thinking is, 20 to 1. I'm playing pretty well. We really need the money. I'll bet a thousand bucks on myself. <gasps> All right? So he does. He bets a thousand bucks on himself. So he goes out and, he, and he's, he ends up the first day he's leading by stroke round one. He goes the second, second day, ends up leading the, the, the tournament by two strokes at the end of round two. So he goes in the final round on Sunday and he's leading the tournament all the way up to the 16th hole by one stroke. So on the 16th hole, he misses like a four-foot putt, kind of rip, uh, lips around it and uh, misses the putt, drops into a tie for first place. So now he's, he's got hole 17 and 18 to play, and he's doing okay, 17. The two guys that were behind him now catch him on 17 and 18. So there's two guys that finish, and they're all done. The leaders are all done. He's the last guy to come in on 18. So he hits his first shot into the trees. His second shot is straight across the fairway, but he's a good enough golfer that his third shot lands on the green. It's a par five. All he needs is a birdie to win. It's a 40-foot putt. So he hits his putt, it's dead on center. At the last second, it breaks about an inch, and he misses it, leaves it six inches short. That was for the win. First prize was $75,000 and a new car. So he leaves it six inches off to the right, so he taps it in. He ends up in a playoff with the other two guys. First hole, loses. Right? Now, the whole day, now I'm watching this thing on television, I'm thinking, okay, now, I know when I call him Monday, that this is a loser because I know him. I mean, this is just no, this is a no win. This is, hey, you had a great round, and he'd answer, yeah, well, that's the difference between you and I. You'd be satisfied finish second, and I should have won it, and, and I, you know, and he went, went off in that direction. And then if I said, you know what, well, you really choked. Um, you know, that probably wouldn't have been a major comfort to him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, how'd you miss a four-footer? I mean, you don't deserve the one you miss a four-footer. But, see... And so there, there's, there's not a lot of room here for any type of encouragement and support. So, uh, you know, God realizes how sensitive I want to be, and he makes it very easy for me because he's not home and I talk to his wife. That's a lot easier. <laughs> so, anyway, but we have a great conversation. But it's interesting because I want to illustrate a couple of things that came up in our conversation as it relates to this whole problem. Was he content to finish second? Do you think he was? No. And you know why he wasn't? And here's, this is the insight his wife gave me. Because as, in the course of the conversation, she said, well, you know, 
and I know him, so I knew he wasn't going to be, but he, he says, well, you, you, you know him, and he wasn't content uh, all the way. All I kept hearing was, I should have won it. I should have won it. God's trying to get even with me. God's punishing me. And then I'm thinking, God's punishing you. This is the same God that destroys cities when he feels like really laying out some good punishment, right? I mean, I mean now let me, let me see if I understand this right. God's punishing you. You finished tied for a second. Wow. If some of us would only be punished like that, huh? <laughs> so, well, what did he win for second place? He goes, well, he tied for second today, so they split second and third. So the, guy who, the guys who finished second won $30,000 each. Now, let me ask you something. Now, now, you know where this is going, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Now, if somebody said, we'll pay for your whole family to come out for five days, all expenses paid, so you can participate in this golf tournament, it doesn't cost you anything, and on top of all of that, you have a chance to actually win money where we'll give you money to have played. And we'll give you $30,000 if you do well. Could you be content with that? <laughs> now, I'm thinking maybe I could. But... He, he's looking at it that God's punishing him because he finished in second place. Okay? It gets worse. Well, what's the problem here? Well, think about it. I should have won $75,000. I, I should have won a new car. And what really ticked him off was he should have won what? Another 20. 20 to 1. He bet on himself. Should have won another $20,000. So now here it is. He has been blessed with $30,000. Is he content? No way. Why? Because it should have been more. You see the principle here? You see how deceptive it gets? Do you see the delusion of all of it? It's like you see the person in, in, on the big spin. They get to the big spin. And they spin the wheel. They could win any number of prizes. There's a million dollars on there. The little ball goes round and round. Get the big spin. It lands on 25000 Great. That's great. Hey, congratulations, you won $25,000. Oh, yeah, that's great. Got the big spin. There's a little ball that went from a million to $25,000. And, and, and what? That's just great. Thank you very much. You know, it's, it's the equivalent of, hey, take the rice aroni and uh, we'll see you later. Have a good day. You know what I'm saying? The problem is, is that gambling, if you think about it and, and, and you, you brush off all the, uh, the, the glitter that surrounds it, it leads a person to becoming less content in their life. It leads a person to not having joy in their life. Why? Because there's always more. You should have won more. It should have been a bigger pot. It should have been a bigger prize. It shouldn't have been just this. It shouldn't be just $30,000. It should have been seventy-five, and it should have been another twenty, and it should have been a car, and it should have been one hundred and twenty or one hundred and thirty thousand. And I'm stuck with a measly thirty thousand dollars. I'm like, gee, you know, people work all year to make thirty thousand dollars. Well, that's not the point. You're missing the point. Oh, I guess I am. Maybe I'm missing the point. Maybe you are missing the point. Because what really is the point? The point is that gambling is a false sense of security and it leads us further from contentment. It leads us to trust in things like it's an instant solution. What was his problem to his finan what was his solution to his financial problems? Man, if I just lay down a thousand and I can win twenty, man, it's an instant fix to a problem that we have. It'll get me out of trouble right now. So I can win the lottery, I can win millions of dollars, and I can have what I want, and I can have it now. I don't have to wait for it anymore. It's an instant solution to all of our problems in life. Or I don't have to wait anymore, or save anymore, or pray about things. I don't have to trust the Lord anymore because, you know what? His timing really bugs me sometimes. <laughs> this wait on the Lord, cease striving and know that He's God. Hey, doesn't He know that we're Americans? What's up with that? I want it now. Microwave. I want it. I prayed about it. When? Just five minutes ago. You didn't answer yet, huh? No. You got me waiting, man. This is driving me crazy. 
It's like, you know, and if I could just win millions of dollars, guess what? I'll never have to work again. As if work's a curse. Do you see what happens? And this is just one of the guidelines. But you think about it. Think about what's going on. This is, this, this is relevant. Gambling is, is the symptom. The root problem is trusting God. The root problem is realizing he can meet our needs. The root problem is, is that he wants us to trust in him and wait on him. The root problem is he wants us to work hard and earn. You know, like the old-fashioned way. You have to earn it. It's not going to be handed to you. You're not going to win instantly in a lottery. You have to work hard. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. We've got a culture, we've got a generation following us who thinks that work is some curse because of the way their mothers and fathers have treated work all of their life. Work's a blessing. Ask anyone who doesn't have a job and looking for a job whether work's a curse or not. It's a blessing. Ask anyone who can't because of some physical uh, disability that can't get out and work and, and, and do something, whether work is a curse or not. Work is good. Problem is that gambling contributes to a person's lack of contentment. But it also causes us to fall into temptation and snares that really destroy our life. In the same section of 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul writes this to Timothy. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. People who want to get rich, the, the, uh, the new Chuck Living version says, people that want to get rich do dumb things. Kind of helps me understand. People that want to get rich do stupid things. People that want to get rich open themselves up to doing foolish things that will destroy their life. People that want money for the sake of it meeting their needs or being able to solve their problems, people that think money will do it, either have never had it or never have observed people that did have it to realize that money doesn't solve all life's problems. But we do stupid things. Let me ask you a question. If you've ever gambled, let me ask you this. No, 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 no. If you know somebody that's gambled, I might get some participation here. If you know someone that has gambled, why did they or do they gamble? Why? How long? To win. To get rich quick. Because it's fun. The sport of it. Part of it. It's exciting. What else? To win, yeah, well, it goes back to to win. To beat the other person. If it's, one, if it's heads up type of thing, it's, you know, it's to win. To beat them. Pay off his attorney's bills, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know. I don't get it. But think about it. In essence, the bottom line of it really comes back to winning. Winning. People gamble because they want to win. You know, and, and for people that say, but it's a sport or something of that nature, you got to really question that. Because I wonder if when they're losing, they still walk away feeling fulfilled. It was just such a challenge. I'm so glad I lost my butt. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. Think about it. That's not, I mean, that's not it. People gamble because they want to get rich quick. They want to win. They want to score big. They want to be able to make as much money as quickly as possible without any of the effort or the work that's involved. That's all part of it. Now, there's some excitement that goes along with it. There's some adrenaline rush. There's that challenge. There's a competition. All those things are true. But what's interesting to me is, if you really ask a question of somebody, why do you gamble? Bottom line motive is because I, I want to win. Because I, I want to make money. Do you gamble because you want to contribute to the building program in Las Vegas? You know, I really dig building hotels. That's why I gamble. I like to subsidize the buffet line. That's why I gamble. I like, see, now, when you get into the religious sector, it's always this. Well, it's for a good cause. 
I, want to, I, I go to bingo because it supports the athletic program of the school. It's for a good cause. Now, let me just, to you, if you got that mentality, let me challenge you to consider something. There's a guy I knew one time, and, and it was early in my, in my um, Christian experience. It was right after I became a Christian and still hadn't got into the idea that church was part of that. And, um, and, and either football games on Sundays still was of a high priority, or golfing wasn't a bad idea. And he gave me the line, you know what, well, a good reason to go to church is because there you worship God. I said, well, gee, then you must not appreciate golf because I worship God when I golf. Get out there, man, the greenery, see the trees, a little stream floating by, man, it's beautiful weather. You can look at the skies, you can stop every now and then, and, and if you make a long putt, you can say, praise the Lord, you know. <laughs> I mean, there's all, you know, you can worship God there. But he asked this question, and I didn't have a good answer for it. He said, now let me ask something. When you go to golf, do you go to worship God primarily, or do you go to play golf? Hmm. Yeah, interesting, huh? See, when you come to church, do you come primarily to worship God, or do you come for something else? See, that really is the underlying issue. And so for the people that say, I gamble because it benefits blah, 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 the question I really ask you is, do you gamble because that's primarily to benefit a charity, or do you gamble because primarily you want to win first, and if you lose, it makes it easier to accept losing? See, if you want to benefit a charity, write a check. That's an idea. It's a thought. But the point is, it's like, well, if I'm going to benefit this charity and I'm going to write a check, well, then what's wrong if maybe I win something in return? You see? Well, are you primarily doing it to give? Or are you primarily doing it to get? It's a good point. It's an interesting question. Because what the Bible says is that gambling causes a person to fall into temptation and snares that destroy. Proverbs 11.28 says this, He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Proverbs 15.27 adds, He who is greedy for gain troubles his own household. Proverbs 23.4 and 5, Do not overwork to be rich because of your understanding. Stop these foolish things. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. You know, these words were written by King Solomon, the wisest man on the face of the earth, according to the Bible. These principles on finance represent God's attitude toward finances. And the point that he made was, a man that had everything God used to be able to pen these words, don't you realize that material things don't satisfy? Don't you realize that material things don't last? Don't you realize that when you reach out to get a hold of them, they fly away from you? Don't you realize when you live your life trying to gain materially that it always will let you down? Don't you realize the fallacy of all this, of this thinking in our culture, this foolishness that, you know what, if I just win the lottery, my life will be okay from now on? It's a delusion. It's a lie. It's not true. The Word of God is truth, and it tells a different picture. It paints a different picture. It says, hey, when you want to get rich, it makes you do dumb things. And the dumbest thing that we do is begin to trust in riches instead of trusting in God. And it opens the door to many foolish things. Plus, it causes you to lose sight of the things that are important. Let me give you an illustration of this heard the story about a mechanic he was having a bad day and his mood was sour and he was working on this man's car and he was one of those guys that he, uh, the car that he's working on who stood there and watched everything that he did he stood there over his shoulder he watched everything that he was doing every time he did something the guy would, would would ask him what he was doing or tell him maybe he should do it in a different way and the, and the mechanic had just about had it so to get him off his back he says look i'll make you a bet i'll bet you a hundred bucks that you can't stand within this circle over here. And he went over there with a piece of chalk on the floor and just drew a big circle and said, I'll bet you a hundred bucks that you can't stand in this circle for more than 15 minutes. The guy goes, oh, a hundred bucks. All right, you're on. So he goes over and the guy gets in the circle and the mechanic goes back to the car. He's working again and the guy's yelling at him from over there. What are you doing now? And all of a sudden this mechanic just snaps. He loses it. He goes over and he gets a hammer and he just starts beating on the engine. Bang, bang, he just beats this thing, and he's beating on this car. 
And uh, he turns around and he looks over after about 10 minutes of beating his car, sweat's coming off. He looks over and the guy's standing in the circle and he's laughing like crazy. The guy's like, what are you laughing about? I just stood here for 10 minutes and I just beat your car up. And the guy in the circle goes, yeah, but you know what? While you were beating my car, I left the circle three times and you didn't catch me. That's our, that's our mentality sometimes about gambling and betting. It's the most important thing is to win no matter how stupid it is. And, and you look at that and go, man, that is exactly what God's trying to say. It causes a person to do stupid things. Number three, and it ties into this real well, it also conditions a person to accept and tolerate sinful actions and attitudes that before they never would have tolerated. The desire, in this particular case, the desire to get rich, keeping in the context of 1 Timothy 6, the desire to get rich, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The desire to get rich. Gambling meets that as far as a criteria. The desire to get rich. It conditions a person to accept and tolerate sinful actions and attitudes. That desire to get rich causes us to lay aside principles that we used to hold in high esteem. It's interesting to me that in a deterioration of our moral culture over the last 20 years, behavior that 20 years ago was frowned upon, was looked at with disdain, was called out for what it really is, that over the last 20 years, that behavior, those behaviors, have become embraced by our culture to not just the world around us, but even has infiltrated God's people in the church. Where before gambling was looked at as no way in the world is gambling right, to now where, well, wait a minute now. Under the right circumstances and for the right reasons, it's okay. And that delusion or that subtle deception has snuck into every area of our life where now all of a sudden we begin to embrace things without really asking the hard question that we're asking today. You know, let's face it, I'm, going, I, I'm stepping over, over the line here. I'm getting into the meddling area of life. When, when the Word of God gets you where you're at and, and it affects the way you live, then, you know, some people you think I'm meddling and I'm asking some questions and who am I to ask these things, but that's the purpose of studying the Word of God. And whatever I ask doesn't really make any difference because the Spirit of God is asking you those same things and He's already been asking you those same things. So, you know, it's kind of a double whammy. But the point is, is that we've moved into a culture where we're now embracing things that 20 years ago we would have said, no way. We're being slowly conditioned to accept sinful behavior and attitudes that we never would have accepted before. Why? Because it's called moral relativism. It's called justifying behavior. That's where we're at in our culture. That's the problem that we have. Let me give you an illustration of this. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the, the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs, gotten themselves into hot water, fallen into the snares of the traps. It conditions a person to accept and tolerate sinful actions. We did work for a guy about eight, nine months ago. The guy's a Christian goes to another church, know him very well. We did a job for him. He asked us to deliver material to the job. He asked us to finish the, our portion of the contract, which we did. We honored. We finished it up. He took all the money that was left in the, in the uh, construction loan. It was dispersed to him, and he never paid us. When I asked him why he never paid us, he said, well, you know what? cost overruns, I had a budget, um, you know, I got myself in a jam, there wasn't enough money to finish the job. I said, well, when you asked me to ship the material out to the job, you knew you weren't going to pay me, right? You knew you weren't going to pay us, right? I said, yeah. I said, well, why did you do that? Well, because I thought, what he's saying is, I, I gambled. I took a chance. I thought that this other project that we had coming up and this other one that we had coming up would free up some funds, and would be able to pay you guys and meet our obligation. But that hadn't happened. Didn't happen. Still hasn't happened. It's 10 months. You know, and finally, it's like in this process of continually talking to him, I began to realize, you know, see, what happens is when our overriding goal is to meet our material needs, 
then we begin to sacrifice and tolerate and accept and we become conditioned to justify anything. We do, we, we do work together with, with a, a friend that, um, you know, he's a general contractor. And he deals with people all the time that enter into an agreement with him, whether it's in writing, whether it's verbal. Hey, do this for us. We need this done on the job. Okay, well, can you put it in writing? Because, you know, if you're in construction long enough, somebody tells you something verbally, you begin to realize that, you know, in the heat of the moment, they'll tell you anything to get the job done. Either it's inspection is due or there's disbursements that are due or something's going on. Hey, we need this extra done. Just do it. You know I'm good for it. Okay. Eight months later, it's like, you remember that conversation we had last year? You, you know, did I, I don't, I don't remember. You know, it's like, gee, okay, well, and then you go from that to, well, let's just get in writing and cover both our bases so we don't have any problems and we don't have any difficulties. But we deal with people that, you know what, they do that on purpose. They say, do it, you do it, you honor it, and then when it comes time to pay, they try to negotiate. We did it, you agreed to price, it's time to pay. Well, you know what, here's the way we see it. A friend of mine's in a situation just like this. Went and did all this work for a particular owner of a building. By the time it was all done, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of extras. They approved them all, put it in writing, did all of it, and said, you know what? The more we think about it, we shouldn't have agreed to the price on all that stuff. You know what? Let's just negotiate it because by the time you get an attorney involved, we get an attorney involved, we go to arbitration, they'll end up splitting it. Really, you know what? Let's just split it and just pay us a hundred thousand and we'll call it even. What? Maybe like me walking down to you right now saying, hey, how much money do you have on you? Say, oh, I got, you know, 40, 50 bucks. Well, just give me half of it. Why? Well, just because it would make it easier for everybody. <laughs> see, you see what happens here? There's a mentality that it's illegal robbery is what it is. And as I'm dealing with this man who is a Christian, and I know he's sensitive to the things of God, and I know what he wants to do right, God has taken him through a process of saying, you know what? What you did is stealing. Thou shalt not steal. There's no other way you can get around it. You stole. It's no different than going into a 7-Eleven and holding a gun to someone's head and say, give me all the money, it's in the cash register, and you know what, and if I can pay you back, I'll bring it back next week, but until then, I can't pay you back. Well, you never know, that ship will come in. Well, we've been all standing down at the beach looking for any like glimmer of a, of a ship out there. We haven't seen this man's ship yet. And I keep telling that. I haven't seen your ship. You haven't seen your ship. What's going on here? Uh, you know what? And it's all here. Man, I am really sorry. You know I want to do what's right. I am really sorry. You know I want to do what's right. I am really sorry. You know what? No, you're really, you've really been conditioned to accept and tolerate sinful actions and attitudes because your desire to get rich, your desire to meet your own needs, your desire to have your own stuff has led you to throw away every principle that God holds in high esteem. And that is, if the, it, it's the wicked who borrow and do not repay. Thou shalt not steal. It's not a moral relative command. You see, that's the problem of all this. You know, in the world that we live in, it, it encourages this. And God says, man, you know what? Doesn't gambling do exactly that? It conditions us to begin to accept things that not long ago we said would never have anything to do with it. And that's what sin is. It's interesting. Have you, did you hear the movie uh, Indecent Propo Proposal? You know, the one with the Demi Moore and uh, what's him call it? Uh, that, that blonde guy with the blue eyes. What's his name? Oh, Robert Redford. Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do people see in him anyway? anyway um, but, but the point is, if you remember the movie, the gist of the movie or, or the, 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 the theme or plot of the movie was Here's this couple, they're having financial problems, so they go to Las Vegas, and they take all the money that they have, and they're going to bet it just one time to try to make some money. Just one time. Stick it on a roulette wheel or whatever, and uh, they lose everything. The fact that they lose everything puts them in a position where now they're open to considering something that before then they would have never given a consideration. You see, you see the point? The fact that they compromised in one area, it led to the next area, and the next area was, hey, would you for a million dollars let me sleep with your wife? You see how that happens? It opens the door. Once you compromise in one area, it opens the door to the next area. 
and to the next area and to the next area. And before you get down the end of all of this, you look back and you know what? And it's pierced many persons. And it's, it's caused those who are, that were at one time strong in their faith to begin to do foolish things. This friend of mine in this golf tournament six, eight years ago, was a, I mean, this guy was, was solid. Solid spokesperson for Jesus Christ. Gave his testimony everywhere and anywhere that he was at. It was, a solid, it was solid in his faith. What's happened? It breaks my heart. I mean, we used to meet together every week. We'd meet for Bible study and discipleship time together. We met together for one year straight, every Wednesday morning. The guy loved the Lord. What's happened? Man, I'll tell you what, that just, that just, just, grabs, that just, just grabs my heart and just yanks it right out of my body. What has happened? It's a series of compromises. We begin to embrace things that at one point in time we never would have embraced. Which leads to number four, gambling changes a person's commitment to spiritual things. It really does. It changes a person's commitment to spiritual things. 1 Timothy 6.10 reminds us that here we are at one point, we want to do what's right before God, and before you know it, it's not important anymore. What's become more important is winning money, having things, materialism. We've gone from it's important to live a life pleasing to God to, you know what, spiritual things aren't as important anymore. Physical things become more important. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it demonstrates itself in a variety of ways. And those who are close to the Lord and the warning that I have for any of us who want to do what's right before God is very simply this. If nothing else through this series, it should demonstrate that when we begin to compromise in an area of our life, the most solid person that loves the Lord and wants to do what's right before God is being taken down a deceptive path that could drop you into a snare of tempt and temptations that will destroy your life spiritually. And before you know it, you'll be no different than the friend of mine who's now betting on himself to get out of a financial jam, a person who loved the Lord with all of his heart at one time and now is leading a path and going a direction that no longer does he love God with all of his heart, but now he's caught up in the things of the world and the system of, of the world and the deception of all of it. And the warning is very simply this. If it happened to him, it can happen to me, it can happen to you, it can happen to any one of us when we begin to compromise what's important in our life. It changes a person's commitment to spiritual things. It also contradicts the spiritual qualities that a godly person should pursue. It really does. See, in 1 Timothy 6.11, the conclusion of this particular passage, it contrasts, hey, the world loves money. The world wants to get rich. The world wants to get rich quick. The world doesn't want to win. The world I mean, doesn't want to work. It wants to win. It wants to have it handed to them. But God's saying, but you, but you, there's a contrast there. This is the way the world lives, and this is the way you are to live. And if my people are called by my name, you see, there's a lifestyle for God's people that's different from the culture that we live in. God's saying, I don't care what everybody else in the world is doing. You do it this way. But you, O oh man of God, you flee from all these things. Run from it as fast as you can because it's subtle, it's deceptive, it's a snare, it'll trap you and it's going to pull you down, it's going to ruin your life, not only spiritually but physically as well. Run from it. Run from all of it. Run from pornography. Run from drinking. Run from gambling. Run from sex outside of marriage. Run from these things. Run from drugs. Don't you understand? Don't embrace the mentality of the culture we live in. Run from it. And get away from it as fast as you can. Because when you start playing with fire, you're going to get burned. God says, flee all these things. And you know what? Pursue righteousness. Pursue living right before God. Pursue godliness. Look at the character and the attributes of God and pursue those things. Pursue faith, which is trusting in God instead of trusting in the system the world around us tries to believe us we can trust in. Stop trusting in money. Stop trusting in material things. Stop trusting in drugs. Stop trusting in drinking. Stop trusting in gambling. Stop trusting in these things. But put your trust and faith in God who will never leave you down. Love and endurance. Do you realize the testing of our faith produces endurance? That sometimes we go through difficult things in life because it's the best thing for us spiritually? That there's no difficulties you ever go through that God hasn't ordained and allowed? There's nothing that happens to you that God doesn't know is happening to you? 
My friend who's having financial problems, do you think God doesn't know he's having financial problems? But he's having financial problems for a reason, and God's doing a work in his life because he loves him and he cares for him. And he who he loves as a son, he'll discipline. God's trying to teach him something. You know what his wife said? It's ugly what we're seeing come out of all of this. But God's doing something in his life. And he doesn't see it yet, and he doesn't realize it yet. But one day, hopefully, he'll turn back and say, I saw what God was doing through all of this. See, it produces endurance. The testing of our faith produces endurance. And what about gentleness? Gentleness? The opposite of gentleness is some lady at a slot machine. Isn't that the truth? Don't you ever take someone's slot machine from them. I was thinking, one well, armed bandit, they'll beat you to death. I mean, that's gentleness. I mean, stop and think about it. There's nothing more aggressive than someone who's gambling. There's nothing more that's the opposite of everything that we're talking about than a person who's losing as they're gambling. Gentleness, you lose. It's not gentle. Is it? I mean, you look at these things. Man, you know, and, and God continually tries to warn us that gambling controls our heart. And as a result, it controls our value system. Read Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Think about if this isn't true. Where our heart is, that's where our treasure is. Where our heart is, that's where our treasure is. Think about it. At the end of this passage is when he says, But you, man of God, people of God, seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And he'll take care of all the needs that you have. All these things will be added unto you. But you seek first God. Man, you know, you got to ask a question. Is a person who has turned to gambling for whatever reason, whether it's to win money, whether it's to get rich quick, whether it's to provide for themselves financially, whether it's to, uh, whether it's competition or the sport or whatever of it, you got to ask yourself a question. Are they pursuing the things of God? Are they seeking first God and His righteousness and His kingdom? It really becomes a matter of stewardship in the final analysis, if you ask me. Let me ask you a question. If you took your retirement money and you gave it to a financial planner or, or some investment counselor, and you found out that they were taking all the money in the world that you ever saved for your, for your retirement, and they were taking it to Vegas, and they were putting it on black on the roulette wheel... Now, would there something be about that that would rub you just a little bit the wrong way? And their answer is, hey, but life's a gamble. You've got to take a chance. Yeah, whoa, 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 whoa. You take a chance with your money, but give us ours back. Isn't that true? Now, let me ask you this. If everything we have as God's people has been entrusted to us from God, that we are stewards of His resources, and whatever we have, He has given us, for the purpose of demonstrating faithfulness toward him. I just, I just question, I really challenge the mentality that says, but you know what? I've got an extra 500 to waste. I've got an extra 1,000 to waste. Even if I don't win, we plan to lose that much. Now, I don't know, but I have a real hard time sitting before the Lord saying, you know what? It was 30 to 1. It was 20 to 1, and I was really hitting the ball well. You see what I'm saying? Who are we that we have determined what God has given us that we can decide what we have available to waste? Every penny that we spend is a matter of stewardship. If I take the resources God's given me to buy drugs, I'm making a priority decision. If I take the resources God's given me to go to Vegas and bet, I'm making a priority decision. Or alcohol, or pornography, or any of the things that we've talked about through this whole series. I'm making a priority decision what's important. Is it more important for me to enjoy the benefits temporarily of what I'm doing, or is it more important for me to do what's right before God and do what He wants me to do long term? See, it really is a spiritual issue, isn't it? It's not as simple as, well, I got an extra 500 bucks. And the last thing is this. It characterizes, gambling characterizes those who are guilty of greed. It really does. In the final analysis, it characterizes those who are guilty of greed. You know, Exodus 20, 17 says, You shall not covet. 
covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his maidservant, nor his uh, manservant, nor his ox, his donkey, or anything that his neighbor has. You shall not covet. You, know, you shall not become discontent in life because you see other people have more things physically than you do. Gambling really characterizes those who are guilty of greed. Colossians 3.5 says, But put to death, therefore, whatever things belong to your earthly nature, whether sexual immorality or impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is what? Idolatry. Greed is idolatry. See, Jesus said you can't serve both money and God. Why is that? Because it's a priority system. If God is more important to you, then everything that you do from a financial standpoint is going to be funneled through whether it's going to be pleasing to God. If money's more important to you or things are more important to you, then God's not even a consideration, so it's not a spiritual issue anymore. It just becomes one of a practical, relevant, uh, material issue. I've got so much, I can spend so much, we can risk so much, and if we get a return, great. And if not, we'll justify it that we like to build hotels in Vegas. Or it's going to the athletic department of the school. Or whatever it is that we can rationalize and justify away. But when you get down to it and you look at all these guidelines, you've got to ask yourself some questions. Is gambling right or is gambling wrong? And the results, whether it's the lack of consequences or the rewards of our behavior, isn't always a good measuring stick for whether something is right or wrong. If you gamble and win a million dollars, that still doesn't make it right or wrong. If you gamble and lose a million dollars, it still doesn't make it right or wrong. You see what I'm saying? In our culture, we've gotten to the point where if the end result is good, the activity must be good. And that's not true. God's saying that an act is right or wrong because he says it's right or wrong. Not because of the lack of consequences or the apparent rewards that come as a result of it. If you go and you rob a bank and don't get caught, it doesn't make robbing banks right. If you cheat on your spouse and don't get AIDS or some disease, it doesn't make that right. You see what's going on here? If you drink and don't become an alcoholic, then it doesn't make drinking right because you didn't suffer the ultimate experience and the result or downside of it. If you gamble or if you do drugs and you don't become an addict, it doesn't make taking drugs right. If you drink and you drive, but you don't get an accident, it doesn't make drinking and drinking and driving right. You see how messed up we are? And if you gamble and you don't become a compulsive gambler, it doesn't mean that gambling is right. Or that there's no dangers associated with any of these things. Behavior is right or wrong because God says it's right or wrong. And oftentimes, where he doesn't say, thou shalt not, he gives us plenty of guidelines that we've got to ask some difficult questions. And I'm not going to tell you anything, whether gambling is right or wrong, from the standpoint of how I feel about it, because I think it's pretty obvious. But the point is, is that what does the Spirit of God in your life as a believer tell you about what you're doing in your life? To him that knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And I'll tell you what, I've talked to enough people that have been involved in certain lifestyles to realize how wrong those things are, even though it's not apparent to a lot of us on the outside what's really going on in the inside. There's a man I talked to several years ago, and I'll close on this. Well, just a few years back, actually, that I invited to come to speak at a Rams chapel because I knew his history. He'd grown up in, uh, in Detroit. He was involved in a crime family. He was involved in professional boxing, which was corrupt at that particular time. And I'm not so sure that it's not today, but that's a you know, sidelight editorial. But anyway, the point is, is that he was involved in this lifestyle. And he went from boxing and being involved with the underworld to, to running vending machines and some other things to get involved in gambling and the whole lifestyle that went along with it. And he saw the corruption of all of it. He saw the, the devastation of all of it. And the bottom line was, his job was to go and collect debts that were owed by people who got into gambling situations. Went knocking at the door. Stereotypical, we're going to break your leg by Friday if you don't pay. Or you're going to disappear into the river wearing those cement shoes that we hear about if you don't pay. That was his job, and that's what he did. And he was very good at it. And he made a lot of money doing it. Well, two ladies go knocking at his door one day. And they thought that he was a visitor to their church the week before. They got the address messed up somehow or another. And they went and they knocked on his door. And they said, hi, we're here to tell you about Jesus. Have you ever in your life asked Jesus Christ to become your Lord and Savior? It's like, what? 
uh, you know, and, and they, they started to talk for five, ten minutes. Uh, he listened to them and then politely told them, you know, I think you got the wrong address and, and, and take a hike. But the interesting thing was that God began to do work in his life. And he began to realize what he was involved in. He began to realize that there was no hope for his life. Because here was a man who saw people die just like that and realized the same thing could happen to him. And one night, in the privacy of his home, he asked God to forgive him for his lifestyle and asked Jesus Christ to come into his life. I met him a few years ago because he became a pastor on a church staff. And the most incredible thing about the whole story is that today he is in the presence of the Lord because God called him home. But what's the whole purpose of the story is to illustrate here was a man who knew what was going on behind the scenes. He knew the ugliness of all of it. He was broken because of it. God brought him to himself, and he put his faith and trust in Christ. God took him, and he became a new creature. His direction totally changed 180 degrees. He was going this way. God said, now you're going this way. And he was a man who sold out and loved Jesus Christ with all of his heart. And God rewarded him a couple of years ago by saying, you know what? It's been a tough life. It's time to come on home to me. Now, I'll tell you what. There's hope for everybody. I don't care what you're struggling with, but I'll tell you this much. God loves you. Jesus Christ died for you, and you need to put your faith and your trust in him. And as God's people, it's time that we put our obedience back into action once again and, become, and begin living a life that's pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity once again to look at your word, to uh, hear what you have to say about the subtle deceptions of our culture. God, help us to examine ourselves. You tell us to examine ourselves and make sure that we're in the faith. God, we also should examine ourselves not only once we understand that we are ch children of God, but we need to examine ourselves to see if our lifestyle is pleasing to you. God, we need to ask ourselves the difficult questions that you ask us through the person of your spirit and his presence in our life. But why are we doing some of the things that we're doing? Why are we embracing the culture that we live in? Why have we rationalized and justified so many things? And I believe, God, you teach us it's because we've been conditioned to accept sin. We've been conditioned to tolerate it. We've been conditioned to embrace it. And this error of moral relativism, that somehow the end result is really all that matters. God, help us to see that it's not the end result, but it's the obedience day by day that you're looking for. You tell us that you search all over this earth looking for someone who has a heart after you. God, may we become those people, that we can be salt and that we can be light in the world that we live in. That people can tell the difference. That the world we live in can tell the players without a scorecard. That they can look at our lifestyle and our actions and know there's something different about us. And that you can use us and our lifestyle as we please you to bring glory to you. God, may we be used by you as, as we live lives that are pleasing to God to draw others to Christ. Because outside of him there is no hope. God, we just thank you for that and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.